0: Well, good morning again. I have a quick announcement um, before we begin and get into the Word. As you know, this past year has been difficult, and it's so good to see all of you as we are opening up more. And most of you know this is not our permanent location. We're looking for to get back into the schools. Um, As I've been talking to the deacons and the leadership, we've been trying to brainstorm how to best accommodate as more people come and as people uh, visit, and we just want to encourage spiritual growth. And so we're going to do something that may be a little new to some of you, um, but especially for those who are members and regular attenders, we think it would be really helpful if we start sitting in the same areas as kind of groups. And how we want to create those groups are basically uh, based on... um, frankly, based on your financial status. And so if you are blue-collar or you have not gone to college, uh, we'd like you to stay in one group. Um, If you have a better job, we'd like you to be in another group. Um, We're still working out the details of this, uh, but we're combing through people's giving. And those who give more, we actually are going to do something like a closer parking spot or seating up front Um, this being a more educated area of the country. We do also ask if you are in that blue-collar, no-college-degree group that you refrain from speaking to the visitors just because we want to keep a good uh, reputation uh, for our church. Now, most of you know that I'm being facetious. I'm not being serious. The rest of you we're trying to figure out how they could how you could comfortably walk out <laughs> as i was speaking and get the largest voice on the internet to warn everyone about this church and this pastor but there's a point here could you imagine if i was serious to take the beauty of the diversity and the wonders of the church the camaraderie the fellowship and break it down into cliques and to group into different groups segregating it but not just segregating it into oh i've known this guy for years but segregating it in a way that some feel honored because they have money and others feel shamed because they don't could you imagine a church like this well you don't need to imagine because i'm about to introduce you to such a church In fact, if you've been around, you're getting to know this church quite well. It is the church at Corinth. And yes, they were doing exactly what I just described. What makes it worse is they weren't doing it from the top down. It wasn't ordered by their leadership. They were doing this as believers. They were doing this outcasting people, segregating, forming cliques on their own. And in our new series that we start this morning on the Lord's Supper, Paul addresses the significance and the holiness of the Lord's Supper. This teaching is instigated by the Corinthian sinful behavior at this gathering, at the gathering of God's people. And so we start this series this morning. It's going to be three or four parts simply entitled The Lord's Supper. However, if today's sermon had a subtitle, it would be the perversion of the Lord's Supper, the perversion of the Lord's Supper. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 22 is our passage for this morning. Verses 17 through 22 of 1 Corinthians 11. Paul writes, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. Because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are proved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. This morning, four aspects of the perversion of the Lord's Supper. Four aspects of the perversion of the Lord's Supper. Jumping right in, our first aspect of how the Corinthians perverted the Lord's Supper is the reprimand of degeneration, the reprimand of degeneration. That is, we see Paul starting right off the bat in confronting, rebuking. But what is, they, what are, what is he rebuking? That they have degenerated in their fellowship and in their worship. I'll read for you again verse 17. He says, but in giving this instruction, this new instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Imagine being in this church, and you're gathered together, everyone is silent, you're well into this letter, and someone who is reading this letter to the whole congregation gets to this point. You're feeling pretty good about yourself because he just said that I do praise you in the previous section that we saw. You now brace yourself, you you get tight, and you say, uh-oh, what's coming? What's coming? But how he begins is very fitting. He's about to confront some pretty gross behavior made all the worse by the context in which they are behaving that way, the church, the Lord's Supper. I mentioned last week briefly that his tone changes from the previous issue to this one because when he was talking about head coverings, it was most likely that they had asked a question but none of them were foregoing the head coverings. But here, he is rebuking existing sin, sin that he has heard of, something that they are currently doing. And one of the indicators of this distinction is that back in verse 2, when he started the discourse on female submission, Paul says he praised them, remember that, for their adherence to the apostolic traditions, that which became the Word of God. Now, he says in this new teaching, he says the opposite. I will not praise you. And let me explain why, he says. Now, before getting into the specifics of exactly what they were doing that was so, uh, so gross, so sinful, he makes a general statement that when they come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, we would say their meetings are doing more harm than good. We'll see that throughout this passage, the coming together that he refers to is the church meeting, the assembly for worship, assembling for public worship. And what they would do at that time, which we don't really practice these days, maybe some churches do, but generally it's not practiced, at least in North America. They would have a big meal together as part of their worship, and that would segue at the end of the meal into communion. Just like the actual meal and where Jesus had with his disciples and instituted the Lord's table where they were eating. We don't have a lot of detail of that in the Gospels, but we're told when they had finished eating, then Jesus did this. And so we know there was a traditional Roman or Jewish meal followed by the institution of the Lord's table. Then the early church, including the ancient church of Corinth, continued this practice where perhaps they would have a worship service like we we would have it. Uh, minus, obviously, the technology and the uh, reverb and echoing of the pastor. And then they would have a big meal together, and at the end of it, like Jesus did with His disciples, they would have the Lord's table. So we don't really do something like this today, but the principles are still applicable. Whenever believers gather, whether it's for formal worship or casual fellowship. So, for example, just going out and hanging out, some, going to someone's house, going to a bridal shower, for example, as some of you did yesterday. Things like that, or even just you know a couple of people having dinner together. Whether it's something like this or casual fellowship, you understand that when Christians get together, there is incredible potential for good to come out of it. Starting with a conversation that honors the Lord, that focuses on the Lord, practices, behaviors that honor God, followed by mutual edification and sharpening of one another. And we understand this. We've, we've experienced this. We experience this on Sunday mornings. And perhaps in terms of the sharpening one another, we experience this more outside of Sunday mornings, when we're hanging out with each other or family or friends. But... When we are selfish, when we seek to do just things that are considered fun according to the world standard, let's just sit and be quiet, watch a movie, watch a game, whatever it may be. If we seek just our comfort because we know that true fellowship takes effort and hard work, then all those things tend not to happen. We are still Christians, but we're not honoring God in that gathering. We're not talking about Him. We're not sharpening His people. We're not lifting up His name in worship. Like the Corinthians, we have a choice always. Today, that conversation over that meal, do you choose better or worse? Do you come together and do better or worse? Better, that which reflects the desire of the Lord wherever His people gather. Did you catch that? The better is what God wants. The biblical conversations is what God wants. The encouragement. The focusing on the gospel and the Lord all the more as you see the day drawing near. We don't don't play a game when we know that the end is near. If you knew there was a, a nuclear missile headed to destroy San Francisco and the greater Bay Area. You would not say, hey, let's see what's on Netflix. You would brace yourself. You would pray. You would call people to share the gospel. You would do those types of things. And and that's what the, the Scriptures command us. As time passes, and we know the Lord is coming sooner and sooner. We're closer to His return. We need to do what is better. Edification, praise, glory. Or as the Corinthians were doing, we can choose worse, which takes away the potential in that sacred gathering, robbing God of glory and removing any benefit to His people. Again, this is any time that believers gather together, but all the more important when it is a scheduled, official worship service Choose better or worse. That's your choice. There is no neutral. There is no in-between. The Corinthians, Paul is saying, repeatedly chose worse, and this is important, though many of them did not realize it. I think it's safe to say that most of them didn't realize it till they read this letter. They didn't know what they were doing was wrong. They didn't know what they were doing was worse because they were having fun. They were enjoying themselves. That, that, that feeling of having had a good time, that closeness with friends, isn't that God-given? And Paul says, no. You've chosen worse, not better. But let's move on and see exactly what that looks like. What is that, the worse? We get to our second aspect of the perversion of the Lord's Supper, and that's the reality of Divisions. The Reality of Divisions, verses 18 and 19. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. These two statements read together seem to contradict each other, but that is the reality of divisions. Divisions because he's basically saying that there are two types of divisions. There are bad divisions, and there are necessary divisions. Verse 18 talks about the bad. Verse 19 talks about the necessary. But as we'll see, and I I feel like this is uh, the case with many necessary things in Christianity, the necessary divisions are only necessary because the bad divisions exist. First, let's look at verse 18. There's an interesting note I want to point out that Paul says in the first place, but then he never explains a next or a second. This is most likely just simply a form of emphasis on his part, whether purposely or he got just so uh, into this point that the second point never came or just rolled into the first point. But here we see the explicit explanation that the gatherings he's talking about are church worship service or church-wide gatherings. He says you come together as a church. That word church literally is the word assembly or congregation. We know in the New Testament it refers to a church worship service, a church gathering. And as we uh, talk about the church, right, he's always talking about believers, not a building or not the person's house where they met or a meeting room. He's speaking of believers. Then he uses this word divisions. Divisions in the Greek is a word from which we get the English word schism. The word means to cleft or rent, rent as in tear apart. It literally refers to a cutting or tearing of something. Metaphorically, it's used to refer to division and dissension. So, what are you saying is that when the church gathers, instead of fellowshipping, they were selfishly indulging. Instead of worshiping God, they were arguing and fighting with one another. This reminds me of what we saw back in chapter 1, if you want to turn there quickly. In chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, it starts the letter right off the bat where Paul, using the same word for divisions in the Greek, confronts them, and he says in chapter 1, "'Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment.'" for i have been informed concerning you my brethren by chloe's people that there are quarrels among you now i mean this that each one of you is saying i am of paul and i am of apollos and i of cephas and i of christ again it's the same word divisions there you remember this if you were around that they there were there were divisions, factions within the church, and they were claiming the name and possibly the teaching of different leaders within the church, even Christ. And Paul said, that's wrong. You can't do this. Back in chapter 11, the divisions that we're talking about this morning are different. They're not based on these different individuals and theology or thinking uh, about certain people's teaching, but they are still divisions nonetheless. And in some ways, the divisions addressed here in chapter 11 are worse because they are in the midst of the Lord's Supper, which by its very nature proclaims the greatest act of selflessness the death of Jesus Christ. So, in what is to celebrate and co- commemorate the greatest act of selflessness the world has ever seen and will ever see, they are being selfish. Like today, society back then was filled with all kinds. There were, for example, and specific to this passage, there were what we call the haves and the have nots. Rather than coming together to to display the beauty and wonder and glories of Christ's body, which is highlighted through diversity, not just in ethnicity, not just uh, in genders, but also in financial status and background and education. Instead of that, they were creating a gulf, a schism, based on socioeconomic differences. In other words, a meal that was to be a sign of unity became the very hub for them of inequality and alienation. Like with most of the issues in the Corinthian church that Paul addresses, he has only been told, he's been informed At the end of verse 18, he says that he's been told about these divisions, and though he wants to give them the benefit of the doubt, and even though there may have been room for exaggeration among those who told him, he believes the report to be true to some degree. We know that those who are sharing this with Paul are not merely trying to gossip or slander. They are not disinterested observers with nothing else to talk about. They are reliable witnesses that care about the Corinthian believers, and they have respect for Paul's ability to train them, to teach them, to confront them. Now, in our next point, Paul will get into more detail about what they're doing that is causing the negative divisions. But before we get there, let's look at verse 20. Let's talk about the necessary divisions in verse 19. A single Greek word is translated into this phrase, there must be. It refers to a necessity or a compulsion. It expresses a logical necessity. And it begs the question, why are some divisions or factions necessary? And he says it, and I quote in verse 19, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Approved is something that has passed the test and it been proven to be genuine. It's used of precious metals that go through the fire to test or prove their purity. And Paul's point here is that there must be factions so that the true believers will be evident, not factions based on finances or race, factions between believers and unbelievers. Specifically, that the selfishness and worldliness of those causing divisions would highlight the sacrificial love, unity, and spiritual maturity of the approved. To put it simply, divisions separate the true believers from the false believers. How are they approved? Approved by God as true believers? Yes. But also in this, the people who are not promoting the divisions— the people who aren't just sitting with those they are comfortable with because they have the same financial situation as them. They've passed the test of the others in the church, their wickedness, their selfishness, their segregation, their racism, their prejudice. They are the true believers. They've been approved. You say, well, that seems a bit extreme. Would you turn with me to Titus chapter 3, verses 10 through 11? Titus chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. Confront, accept, be patient with? No, reject a factious man after first and second warning. Knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Back to 1 Corinthians. As we move to our third aspect of the perversion of the Lord's Supper, Paul will explain big picture what the perversion is. And then when we close with our fourth point, though I've mentioned it several times already, he will explain specifically what they are doing. But let's start with the big picture in our third aspect of the perversion of the Lord's Supper, big picture, this is a big deal the removal of deity, the removal of God. Look at verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Supper was the main meal of the Romans and Greeks. It was our dinner, essentially. It was the biggest meal. It was in the evening. It closed the day. It was also the meal that you would tend to gather for. Right? We do that just because of logistics. We tend to invite people for dinner because we're at work during lunch. And breakfast is just early and it's usually with family or whatever. Dinner's the main meal. Main meal of the day when you're alone, main meal of the day when you're fellowshipping or gathering with family and friends. We do Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas dinner, not Thanksgiving lunch, Christmas breakfast. You guys get it. As mentioned earlier, this was a full meal, a normal full meal. Not normal, uh, a little irregular because a normal meal would just be at, at home with your friends or, excuse me, at home with your family. But normal in the sense of they were eating a full course meal, And then at the end would be communion, and this would be done at church with the church people. Now, this point, point three in our outline, is very short, but one that needs to be its own because of the severity of the sin. And if you have the ESV or NIV, it actually helps us understand more uh, accurately what the Greek says and understand the problem. Those versions say, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. See, they had so sinned in focusing on themselves and neglecting others with the result of divisions within the church that they had basically removed God from the meal. These are Christians. This is church. They are calling it the Lord's Supper, but Paul is saying it's not the Lord's Supper. You have removed the Lord from this meal, from this gathering. Rest assured... They are going through the motions, the bread, the cup, the words of Christ do this in remembrance of me. There was most likely one individual, a leader of the church who was doing that just like I do when we have communion. Let's do that together and eat it. They were going through all the motions exactly as instituted by God, but God had no part of it because they removed God from it. The Lord's Supper, but they had removed the Lord. I don't know about you, but for me that is a terrifying thought. It's terrifying. To do things in the name of the Lord, per the command of the Lord, as the Lord has dictated and has nothing to do with the Lord. It reminds me of Matthew 7, where those who prophesy, cast out demons, heal people, perform miracles in the name of the Lord say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name, for you, in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, I never knew you. I never knew you, which means including while you were doing those things. In the name of the Lord, They had done what the Lord had commanded, but removed the Lord. We are true believers. We rest in that hope. We are intimately known and will be accepted by God into His kingdom. Nothing can remove our salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. But this is a stark reminder of the importance of heart and the danger of law. the danger of legalism, the danger of going through the motions, of calling yourself a Christian, of coming to church, of going to small group, of answering the questions, of standing, sitting, standing, open your Bible, sit, pray, bow your head. Where's your heart? Where's your heart? Is what you are doing for the Lord in the name of the Lord Truly, your motivation in your heart for the Lord, in the name of the Lord. Or is it for your own reputation? Or is it so you don't look bad? Or is it to appease your conscience so you feel okay, check off the list, don't look bad in front of that person? Maybe it's to come here just so you can yell at someone that upset you this week. And you have come As a child of God, to fellowship with the people of God, in the house of God, singing words to God, hearing a preacher of God, but you've removed God. A powerful warning here from the Corinthians and Paul's rebuke. We need to be careful, especially when it's something like the Lord's Supper that above everything else demands your heart, your righteousness, your selflessness, and your love. That's a general warning, the general perversion, the removal of deity. Let's go to the specific in our fourth and final point, the revelry of debauchery. This is what they were doing. So having seen the big picture issue of divisions and removing Christ from his own supper, we now get into the details of exactly how the Corinthians removed the Lord from the Lord's supper. He begins by stating stating the problem in verse 21 and then highlighting the gravity of the offense with four rhetorical questions, as he often does in verse 22. Let's start with verse 21. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What's happening is that rather than having a communal meal, everyone is bringing their own food. But the more problematic issue is that nobody was sharing. In this practice, they also gravitated, as I mentioned earlier toward their own friends, and they didn't interact with others. It gets worse. The rich or the upper class would have more food, better food, abundant food. Some of the poor would come to the church and the Lord's Supper with absolutely nothing. So there were two extremes, having nothing to eat or having so much to eat that you are gorging on both food and wine to the point that some of the wealthy are getting drunk in church at the Lord's Supper. To be clear for the poor, this was not an issue of someone not wanting to eat by choice. I'm intermittent fasting right now. No. They're, They're not eating because they don't have any food, and these rich guys who have a a ton of food, are not giving them any. In the church, at the Lord's Supper. They have no other choice because they have nothing. They can't afford anything. Maybe they can embarrass themselves and sneak some food that's fallen off the table when the rich get drunk and pass out. Imagine that scene at a church. And you can see how in their selfish practices, they would even more tend toward their own friends within their social classes. Rich don't want to party in front of someone who's going to be a downer, sitting there asking for food in their tattered clothing. And of course, they also just don't want to associate with the lower class. And though you couldn't really tell in our society today as much, Uh, You've seen the historical depictions and books and TV shows. The rich and the poor dressed very differently, especially in the Roman Empire. It was very clear who was rich and who was poor. And here's the thing. In that society, much of what they were doing in church was common outside of the church. For example historians have told us that it was a well-known practice to have what was called basket meals, which is someone would invite you over to their home, a bunch of people to their home, and say, well, it's going to be a basket meal, so you actually bring your own food. You've done this. We've done this as a church. Hey, let's all, everyone go down to Burlingame Avenue, buy some lunch, and we'll have a picnic at at the park. And you all bring your own food. That's fine. Is well known. It was a common practice in that society. It was also common for the upper class to overindulge in wine and food at a private party in their own home or at someone else's home. It was actually expected for the host to provide enough for this to happen. The problem is they're taking social norms, some of which are fine outside of the church, such as basket meals, but are sinful, and contrary to Christ's likeness when applied to the Lord's Supper. There's nothing wrong with a basket dinner. And you know, even today, it is just basic manners to provide more, not less, than your guests can eat when you invite them over for food. But that's not what this is. This is a communal meal the Christians would refer to it as a love feast. It was the focus on Christ and His body, not on self. And I would imagine even if we did go to Washington Park and someone's kind of not having any food, they would probably get annoyed by how many people were checking on them. Hey, do you want some of my sandwich? Are you okay? Okay. But if you look at this verse, verse 21, if you really want to summarize the root of the problem from the verse itself, it is the phrase, each one takes his own. Each one takes his own. It highlights their self-focus and selfishness. Just a word so you're not confused about that phrase. It indicates that some had started a meal earlier. This, of course, would be the rich who, rather than waiting for the fellowship, wanted to have this long party, and so they would start eating their abundance of food before the people who had nothing got there, just extend their party and perhaps remove their guilt in not sharing with others. So let's move on to verse 22. He says, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Four rhetorical questions. You understand a rhetorical question is not meant to be answered, it's to prove a point. The first highlights that they are behaving at the Lord's Supper at a way that can be done at home. In other words, You don't come to the church and the Lord's Supper to indulge and do what you want. If you just wanted to have a party with your friends and overeat, you have a house. Do that at home. Don't do that at church. At church, you are to focus on God. You are to share with others. I want to note that he's not saying that getting drunk or engaging in gluttony is okay at home or as long as you don't do it at church. He's saying that some behaviors that are appropriate at home at a meal are not appropriate at church, especially when celebrating the death of Christ. You get this. Back when we would have potluck lunches after uh, communion, you don't come to the table and see 20 people in line behind you and there's only 20 of a certain item left and you take them all. You look back and you say, well, I'm going to keep it for other people. You don't treat it like an all-you-can-eat buffet, which is okay at an all-you-can-eat buffet or even at home. You just don't do that at church, especially when you're celebrating selflessness. Maybe these days you say, well, we usually don't do this just because it's once a year, kids. I want you to see. I want you to be inspired. We're going to kind of move our dinner to the living room and watch the Olympics. You don't do that at church. But those are appropriate at home. That's Paul's point. He says, you want to act like this? Do it at home. You want to segregate yourself into the rich? Then go invite the rich to your fancy house and do it at home. This is not the place. It's not okay. You can focus on yourself. You can be selfish. You can just hang out with that group at home. But to only focus on yourself or your group of friends at a meal that is to embody the fellowship and selflessness of Christ is wholly inappropriate. It's sinful. And quite simply, if what you have in mind when coming to the Lord's Supper is a party or a private dinner, or like, oh yeah, I'm going to skip breakfast because it's potluck today so I can pick out on other people's dime, then go home and do that there. There's no reason to feast at the church and make a public spectacle of yourself. We've had lean days of our potlucks. And I try to secretly go around and say, hey, let's let the visitors have some food first. And every time I realize I don't need to do that. Because especially deacons, but also all the members, they're already like, oh yeah, I wasn't going to eat because I saw that we didn't bring as much today. I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm saying I'm so thankful for this church because they have that already, that mindset, which is in complete contrast to what the Corinthians are doing. Don't make a spectacle of yourself. Don't draw attention to yourself and your selfishness and your sin and your bad habits and draw away from the glory of Christ and the meaning of the Lord's Supper. When you neglect these truths, Paul says you despise the church of God and you shame the poor, as indicated in the second question. Wow. Here are these guys, probably thinking they're doing nothing wrong. It's like, yeah, there's all these politics out there. I finally get to fellowship with my rich buddies have a meal, I've been waiting all week to prepare this special food for my friends, had this bottle of wine I've been saving up. It was good, it was a good day. It was a good day with God's people. And Paul is saying, you despise the church and you're shaming the poor. That's a serious accusation. So focused on self that you don't just ignore the church of God, you despise it literally to think nothing of it, to think of it with contempt, to despise, look down upon. We've been there, maybe not at the church, but someone treats you in a way that you feel looked down upon. You thought everything was fine and their behavior indicates that they really don't like you, they're mad at you, maybe they even hate you. All the while that person is unaware of the effects on you how their behavior impacts you. And and you think, does this guy despise me so much that they would say that to me? Do they despise me so much that you you would treat me like this? Have I hurt you so badly that you would say that? And Paul is saying that's what they're doing to the church. That's what they're doing to the poor by acting in opposition to what the church is supposed to be. It's like the the poor are sitting there watching them getting drunk and party, just uh, waiting, which is not what it's for, but waiting for communion so they can have that little piece of bread. And you can imagine their thoughts like trying to give them the benefit of the doubt because they're Christians, but do they, do the rich really despise us that much? Do they really think so lowly of us? I get that it happens in society and the parliament members. And definitely Caesar. But these, do they really hate us that much? And so they shame the poor. They make them feel small and worthless, treated as second class citizens. It's not that they necessarily set out to do this. They didn't say, hey, look at what food are you going to bring? Let's make them feel small today. They're not trying to do that, but they do that. We've all been in that situation. And if you haven't, praise God. I'm thankful for that. But we've all been in a situation where we just feel really embarrassed. Right? Whether we missed the memo that it was a black tie affair at work and we show up in jeans and a t-shirt. Or we show up at the wrong time. We come with the wrong thing. Or maybe it is because everyone's talking about their European vacation this summer, and you're the one kid at school going, uh, we went to curiosity and you're embarrassed, you're shamed, because your parents didn't have money or they didn't have the time to take you. We've all been in that situation. Can, can you imagine, on a regular weekly basis, that poor people feel like that in this church? At the Lord's table, at church, in our lives, but especially at the Lord's table, all sin should be left behind. And this, you know, as you know, is segueing into what we'll see in a week or two about the severity, the seriousness of examining our hearts before we take communion, to not take it in an unworthy manner. Otherwise, we eat and drink judgment and wrath unto ourselves. And now you get it. Now you get how, how bad it was. All sin should be left behind. No selfishness, no overindulgence, no bitterness, no racism, no sexism, no feelings of superiority, no flexing your wealth, none of it. And the third question, what shall I say to you, shows Paul's just, he's incredulous. We would say he's at a loss for words. What what can I say? This is unbelievable. Believable. He's bewildered. Is this really possible? And then he comes full circle with the end of the verse by saying that there is no cause for praise here, only rebuke and shock. What does this all mean for us? How do you view God's people and the sacredness of our gatherings? They use this for weddings. They use this for self-help seminars. This is hotel carpet. And sometimes we walk in here and we say, oh, what's up with these guys? It's a hotel this month. It's a school next month. It's that next month. It's, things are falling apart. The, you know, the sound's not working one day. And it's this next day. And, and we start thinking of, like it's a restaurant where we can say, what's going on? Eh, the hostess last week was better. Because we see these normal things And sometimes we forget the sacredness of what we are doing and what this means. We dress up because we're told to, because our parents used to, because someone said something, because of peer pressure. And so we get dressed up, not because of the sacredness of the meeting and the holiness of God, but because it's what church people do. Eat, sip, pray, okay, yeah. It's what we do once a month. Or do you really understand the seriousness of what all of this is, better or worse? That's your choice. This is the danger. There are way more benefits and blessings, but there are dangers. Of your favorite pastor that you listened to this week on the radio... You watch their YouTube video while you're eating, while you're driving, while you're just lying in bed. You want to learn. You want to be informed. That's okay. That's fine. Listen, I'd rather you listen to sermons while you're jogging or when you're getting ready for work or whatever than something else. That's good. But if we view it the wrong way, it fuels our lack of understanding of what church is. It's just the sermon. I want to find a church that preaches the word. And we're just honed in on, I want to find a church like MacArthur's church that teaches like, I want to find a master seminary grad and it's just about the sermon and it just becomes like what you listen to on your podcast, but in person. This is the extra danger of the live stream that we had out of necessity for many months. Just click on, and and it's impersonal. There's no sense of sobriety there. Uh, I'm not trying to give you a leg workout when we ask you to stand when we sing. We stand because God deserves it. We stand, remain standing for the reading of God's Word because, frankly, it's the reading of God's Word. But we've forgotten that. We stand because we're supposed to stand. And we sit when the guy tells us to sit. We have to understand the sacredness of the gathering of God's people, especially on a Sunday morning, especially when we fellowship over communion and the Lord's table. I grieve as I read 1 Corinthians, as I'm sure you do, but I'm so thankful for their negative example and that we can learn from them And Paul's rebuke. How do you view all of this? And if you tend towards the worse, then let's get better. And by God's grace, we can and we will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your goodness to us and the privilege of being with Your people. We pray that we would be ones that do not grieve Your heart because of our hearts, because of our selfishness, because of our desires, our exclusivity, inclusivity, whatever it may be. Remind us without delving into legalism of the sacredness of why we do what we do, may we take it seriously. May we have more respect for you and your people and this gathering and how we sleep the night before and how we dress and how we prepare, what breakfast we eat than we do for that business meeting that we're so nervous for. May we do well for them but give you our best and stop flipping it around we give the world our best out of fear of man and desire for a good job or whatever it may be. And just take advantage of your patience and your grace and the truth that you accept us as we are. Help us to excel more in our holiness. Help us to excel still more in our view of the holiness of this gathering. Pray these things in Jesus' name.